This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Adam Rosenzweig. Adam is a partner of the famous Gehring and Rosenzweig Natural Resource Investors. So, Adam, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here and talk to you. Well, thank you very much for, for having me today. Could you please let us know what Gehring and Rosenzweig Natural Resource Investors is and what you do? Absolutely. Well, we're natural resource equity investors, and we invest in companies across the natural resource space, so both energy companies, mining companies, agricultural uh, my partner, Lee, has been doing this exclusively now since 1991, uh, and first at Prudential and Jenison, where he managed all the natural resources funds for them, and then later at Chilton, where he managed the Chilton Global Natural Resources Fund between 2005 and 2015. And I've been working with Lee uh, ever since 2007 at Chilton, and then since we started our new firm, Gehring & Rosenswag, carrying on the same research and the same investment process uh, beginning in 2017. Brilliant. So uh, how is your approach to investments, Adam? Uh, What do you look for in a commodity and what's your investment process? Well, we're value investors first and foremost, and we believe that the best time to find value in the natural resources space is when a commodity price is depressed, uh, when investor interest is very, very bearish, nobody has any exposure, uh, or even some people are are very short the space. Um, And what we do at that point is we roll up our sleeves and we try to explore the fundamentals uh, of the industry. And we try to see whether or not that commodity market is about to turn from having been in a bear market for a long time to now being in a bull market. And more often than not, we're able to uncover certain large-scale fundamental shifts that have taken place either in the supply side or in the demand side of the industry that tell us that that bear market's coming to an end and a new bull market's coming uh, around the corner, and that's where we like to get involved. So we're value investors. Um, we take very differentiated views on the commodity uh, sectors, on the different commodities within that sector. So whether it's oil, gas, whether it's gold, base metals, copper, iron ore, coal, uh, we'll, we'll really look at everything, and we try to find where the market has really got things wrong. And over the years, we've been able to do that pretty well. Okay. So you believe commodities in general are undervalued today in comparison to the market, right? Is, uh, is it because financial assets are too expensive, commodity prices are too cheap, or a combination of both? I think it's probably all of the above. If you look at the price of commodities relative to the price of the broad stock market, which is something that we like to do, and we've shown in our quarterly letters now for the last couple of years, we've we've been showing this chart, you're actually as cheap as you've ever been going all the way back 100 years. And if you look at major market inflection points, and, and the three that come to mind are 1929, 1969, and 1999, commodities also became very undervalued relative to the broad market. And all three times were fantastic uh, opportunities to become a natural resource investor. We hope that this time is the same, and we think that it really is, because the fundamentals are shaping up to be very, very positive at the same time that the valuations are very low. And to us, that's a recipe for 
for strong investment return. But in the past market cycles, and I think probably this time as well, like you said, it's really a combination of some kind of an investment mania that takes hold uh, and that bids asset prices up to very high levels at the same time as commodities get very, very cheap. Um, so if you were to look back, you know, in the 1960s, you had the gunslinging mutual uh, fund craze here in the U.S. You had the Nifty 50. In the 1990s, you obviously had the dot-com bubble. All those manias helped to bid up the broad market at the same time as people uh, felt that the natural resource markets and the commodity markets were sort of old economy left for dead uh, and became very radically undervalued. The same thing's happening today. You have bank stocks, you have passive investing, you have the crypto uh, craze, you have the cannabis stocks up in Canada. You really have sort of a number of different investment manias. They've all served to bid up asset prices at the same time as they've taken capital away from the resource space. Okay. So Adam, there are a few commodities I would like to discuss with you today. So um, let's start with oil. In your Q1 newsletter, you mentioned that energy demand has never been stronger, yet investors have never been so bearish. You do not hold the consensus view that energy demand will slow down from here. So what makes you think that? So one of, one of the studies that we conducted probably about a decade ago is what we like to call the S-curve. And what the S-curve looks at is it looks at a country's level of per capita oil demand relative to its per capita GDP. And what we noticed is that most countries over time go through an inflection point where at very low levels of per capita GDP, their intensity of oil for every unit of, of GDP growth is relatively small. And then all of a sudden you hit this tipping point and for the economy to grow, it requires substantially more energy and more oil in particular. And then as an, as an economy gets wealthier and more developed, it again starts to flatten out again. So. South Korea is probably the most famous example of this. And over a period of about a decade, its GDP doubled and its oil demand growth grew by fourfold. And you've seen that repeated over and over and over again, again, in this sort of what we call this sweet spot of demand. And typically it's between $2,000 and $10,000 of real per capita GDP. And what's so fascinating today is that if you look over the last 50 or 60 years, the number of people going through that tipping point at any one given time has been fairly constant at about six to 700 million people. So for instance, new countries might come into the S-curve tipping point and other countries would drop off as they become more developed. Uh, but what has happened in the last decade or so is that that number has exploded to the upside. And today you have not only China, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, most of Southeast Asia, now you're also been joined by India, which is just at its very, very early levels of entering this S-curve tipping point period. And so as as a result of that, instead of the typical six to 700 million people that has been the constant over the last 40 or 50 years, you're now approaching, we estimate, between three and a half and four billion people worldwide. So it's a very unique moment in the world's uh, economic development in terms of its energy intensity and its energy intensity growth. Uh, if you look last year, um, when a period when most people felt the economy were worried, the economy was, was going to slow and energy demand was going to slow, uh, energy demand growth actually doubled the run rate for the previous decade in 2018. So just as people thought things were about to slow, growth came in at 2x the average for the prior 10 years. And I think you're going to continue to see those types of numbers going forward. Uh, and, and I think we have quite a room to grow here. So demand, you know, most people are very, very worried about demand. Uh, it comes from a few different reasons. Some people are worried about 
trade war related demand slowdowns. Other people are worried about electric vehicles. But I think just the opposite is happening. We're, we're taking a huge number of people around the world into this period of very, very energy intensive economic development. And the results are going to be shocking well, for the next 10 to 15 years. Interesting that you, be- uh, that you mentioned uh, electric vehicles. Do you believe they possess a threat to oil demand? You know, I don't, I don't think that they do. And the reason for that was a, a pretty interesting essay that we wrote about a year ago. And what we did is, is we compared the current popularity of electric vehicles and the current promise that they hold in the future uh, to the last time that electric vehicles were Uh, popular and we're trying to mount uh, an attack on the internal combustion engine. And believe it or not, that was all the way, you know, a hundred years ago with Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, where Edison tried to convince Ford, instead of launching the Model T, he should introduce an electric vehicle. And ultimately, the problem back then was the battery technology. And I, I worry that the problem today will be the battery technology again. And, and what I mean by that is that It's very, very energy intensive to create a battery pack today. And yes, you know, lithium ion battery costs are coming down, although I would argue that people don't fully understand why. People haven't really dug into the drivers of why that is and whether or not that's a trend that will persist going forward. We personally think that it will probably begin to plateau here. But at the end of the day, it's incredibly energy intensive to produce a lithium ion battery pack. And in fact, if you drive Uh, an electric vehicle or a Tesla for a 10-year life, a full 50% of the energy and the full cycle use of driving around in that car will have already been spent before you take it off the lot in making the battery pack itself. And people don't fully appreciate that. So when you factor in the total amount of energy required to move somebody one mile in an automobile, it's more energy intensive to do it in an electric vehicle once you take into account the battery pack and once you take into account uh, the inefficiencies of renewable sources of electricity to try to power that in a green way, it's actually substantially more energy intensive than an internal combustion engine. And so that begs the question, can something that is more energy intensive ultimately win out? And I would argue that the answer is no. And if you look back, there's a very, very uh, good author by the name of Backlash Smell, who's written several books on the energy, uh, the history of the energy um, industry. And, and the book that I'm thinking about in particular, is called Energy and Civilization, and it talks all about the history of man's use of energy. And in that book, he argues that never before has man really adopted a new technology that is substantially inferior in terms of its energy efficiency to the thing that it was replacing. And You know, I would argue that the last time that, that we tried to do that would have been with the Concorde. And there, obviously, you had a technology that was far superior to the jumbo jets it was replacing. It was much faster. It was a much better experience. However, it took approximately three times as much energy per person to move them across the Atlantic than did uh, the regular commercial flight flights of the time. And as a result, we saw exactly what happened. It was very popular. It was... Um, you know, loved by very wealthy people that could afford to do it, but it was never able to take on mass appeal because it just suffered from inferior energy uh, energy efficiency. And I would argue that the Tesla and other electric vehicles are in the same place today. Yes, they can definitely work amongst the very affluent class of people, but in order for, for the electric vehicle to really take on a mass adoption, 
uh, it will need to have superior energetics to the internal combustion engine. And we don't see that happening, certainly not today and not really any time in the future either. Quite interesting. It, and it's, uh, it, it's a very important point that you, that you made there. Go, going back to, to oil, especially uh, shale, uh, famous investors like David Einhorn and Jim Channels are very critical of the U.S. shale oil and, and gas companies too. You obviously do not share their views, right? At least with oil. Well, I think that you know there's a big misunderstanding amongst uh, shale oil companies. And really, if you think about what's happened to the entire U.S. energy and oil in particular industry in the last 10 or 15 years, things have changed quite a bit. Um, today, I would say that the big attack and criticism on the U.S. shale oil companies is that they're chronic value destroyers. And the evidence that's put forward for that today is the fact that they chronically outspend their cash flow. And certainly, I think, you know, any value investor um, who, who's been taught to, to look at cash flows and to, to study free cash flow in particular will understand that if a company has not been able to generate free cash flow over many, many years, the likelihood that that business has an intrinsic value becomes potentially difficult to see how. Um, but I think that that does miss something in, in the current environment. And, and what I mean by that is that there are certain shale companies today, and it might not be all of them. In fact, I'm almost positive it's, it's, it's not all of them. But there is a subset of U.S. oil shale companies today that are able to grow their business in a profitable way. And I, I think a good example for that, and I think it's, it should be intuitive to, to a lot of people to, to understand this, if you look at a company and you look at their proved reserves per share and you take all the debt and you convert that debt into equity. And considering that most of these companies are trading at multi-year low prices today, uh, I think converting the debt into equity is certainly um, penalizes them. It's not, it's definitely not uh, a benefit to, to, to do it that way. So it takes a very conservative approach and you look at the proved reserves per debt adjusted share over time. And that should take into account all of a company's outspending of cash flow. And what I mean by that is that if a company has been able to book a lot of reserves, new reserves by drilling new areas in their field, but they've been doing it by massively outspending cash flow, that's going to get caught in the denominator when you try to divide the reserves by the debt adjusted share count. And if you look at the trends of how companies have been able to grow that value over time or that, that metric over time, some of them have not been able to and others have been able to. And I think if you focus in on the companies that have been able to grow debt adjusted per share reserves, um, then, then that's a company that even though it may outspend cash flow, even for a year or two or three or four, uh, it is definitely accreting and generating value to the bottom line for investors. And, and we see a number of companies that are able to do that, particularly in the Permian Basin, certainly not all of them. Uh, you definitely need what we call tier one core acreage that generates much better drilling economics than the less core tier two acreage. Uh, and we find it difficult to find companies that are able to generate sustainable value at this point in the Bakken or Eagleford, since we think those fields are, are much further in their development life cycle. But in the Permian, in the tier one core acreage, we have been able to identify a handful of companies um, that we think really have been able to do a great job at growing reserves per debt adjusted share. And, and that really forms the basis of our investments today. So it's not all of them, 
Um, you know, whether or not the industry as a whole has generated or destroyed value is an interesting question, uh, but certainly there's a subset of very high quality companies run by very shrewd managers. And, you know, I think that focusing only on, on free cash flow, particularly given the fact that the oil price has fallen over the last five or six years, nearly in half, um, potentially uh, does a disservice to the quality and the unique nature of the assets that these companies have today. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, moving on to uranium, uh, Gehring and Rosenzweig is quite bullish on the metal, right? As you know, I have been following the uranium space for almost two years now, and I'm very bullish too. So uh, in your opinion, what's going to happen to this market? Well, we, the uranium market is one that we've been involved with for many, many years, uh, on and off, uh, sometimes very well and sometimes poorly. The last time we made a mistake with the uranium stocks uh, was post-Fukushima, where we decided that given the massive sell-off uh, after that event, we felt that that was overdone. And so we, we established positions in a few uranium companies. That was a mistake. It was far too early. And we basically were on the sidelines for several years uh, up until the beginning part of uh, 2018. And the catalyst for us to get involved again, you know, we've always been modeling the demand side of the uranium market going forward through the 2020s. And I think anybody that studies that market realizes that you have a huge amount of new build uh, nuclear utility demand coming from places like China, India, and Saudi Arabia coming up over the next several years. And based on our models, we expected the market to tighten somewhere between 2022 and 2023, um, you know, based on our supply and demand projections. And then obviously what happened was at the beginning of 2018, both Cameco and Kazataprom announced production curtailments of their flagship properties. And once you started to take that mine supply out of the supply and demand numbers, the balancing point was pulled forward from about 2022, uh, 2023 period to the 2019 period. And so we decided that we wanted to get involved given the fact that the companies producing were trading at very, very depressed levels. The uranium price had fallen uh, from you know $140 a pound at its peak all the way down into the low 20s. Uh, the companies were trading at you know near depressed multiples. And and another thing that we like to use as a as a good signal that tells us the bear market has gone on too far is when the best companies operating in that commodity sector can't generate cash profits at their best operations, you know that things have gone too far. And so you were starting to see that with the production curtailments announced by both Chemico and Kazataprom. So we decided to get involved, uh, and it was a very good trade in, in 2018. Uh, uranium prices made their bottom and rallied about 50% on a spot and term basis. Uh, as we go into 2019, things started to slow down a little bit. And I think there's a few reasons for that. And their first quarter call, Chemico announced that um, they felt that several speculators were out in the spot market trying to front run them because, as you know, if you follow the uranium markets, after they curtailed production, they announced that they would have to go into the spot market and buy uh, pounds to fulfill their long-term contracts. So they felt that you know the market was potentially getting some speculative interest uh, that was trying to front run them, and they decided to pull back on their spot purchases for the first half of 2019. And I think that the second thing uh, that really caused market traders to sort of step away and stand on the sidelines for a little while was the pending resolution of this 232 uh, inquiry that finally was announced a few weeks ago. Um, you know, and that obviously has to do with quotas on uh, how much the domestic U.S. uranium 
the U.S. utilities would need to use um, it, from a national security perspective. Uh, that was an open issue, and the Trump administration was expected to rule on that. They finally did uh, a couple weeks ago, and they announced there would be no uh, production quotas. And I think that that really now was a catalyst for certain traders. I think people maybe were standing on the sidelines waiting to get uh, a resolution one way or the other on that inquiry. Now that that's behind us, I think you'll start to see activity pick up in the second half, uh, and, and hopefully prices will resume their upward march. But I think that as you go forward, there's going to be a bit of a change in the perception as well uh, about nuclear power in the uranium industry. And I think as people become more concerned with CO2 as the largest environmental hazard on most people's mind, uh, there'll be a bit of a realization that, that nuclear power and uranium is a great way to generate carbon-free uh, electricity uh, that I think, frankly, will be, will be very much needed as we progress over the next 10 or 15 years, because as you well know, renewables on their own simply can't do it because of the intermittency problem and the fact that they can't serve as, as good baseload power. Sure. No, I agree with you. Uh, you are also very bullish on copper. Is copper only a play in India's growth or are you seeing supply constraints and more demand elsewhere? So the short answer is that no, it's not just an Indian story. I think that if you look on a global basis, the S-curve that we were talking about for oil has a similar analog uh, in the copper markets as well, although it's not quite the same because unlike oil, which is consumed and burned, uh, copper actually gets installed into an economy. So you don't want to look necessarily at copper demand, but rather the total installed copper capacity in an economy. And this follows work that was originally done uh, by Paul Gate, uh, the Alliance Bernstein analyst out of London. Uh, he did it originally with steel and then with copper, and we sort of followed up on some of his work over the years. And it's true, there's a very tight relationship between a country's per capita wealth and the total amount of copper installed in that economy. And it gets installed into things like power lines and power transformers, uh, as well as some residential and, and, um, and commercial construction as well. And there's a very tight relationship between the size of the economy and how much in total copper has been installed. And we see massive growth opportunities uh, in India, but also in China, as well as many of the other uh, industrializing nations in, in um, various parts of the world. And for instance, if you look at India today, we were talking about India uh, as whether or not it's uniquely an Indian story, but India is way behind where it ought to be for an economy of its size. And I think that's why you're starting to see some ramifications from rolling blackouts to really sort of push back on uh, the number of, of rural homes that have been hooked up. And in order to address those issues, there's only one answer, and that's to install more copper. So copper demand will continue uh, to grow dramatically in India. In China, even though we're further along that path, there's still a huge amount of room to grow. Um, you know, a big pushback has always been that China represents 50% of the world's copper demand, but it's not 50% of the world's GDP, so it must be over-consuming. We don't agree with that at all. In fact, if you look at how much is installed per person, uh, I believe it's about 120 pounds per person installed in the Chinese economy right now, which is exactly where an economy of that size ought to be. And if we're going to take that further from here, that number could grow and actually could, could get to 70% of the world's um, copper demand without before they would sort of, quote unquote, over consume. Um, so no, I don't think it's just an India story. I think it's really across the emerging market world. I think another massive driver of, of copper demand is going to be from renewable electricity. So for instance, if you, uh, we estimate that generating 
a sustained uh, kilowatt hour of electricity from a renewable source could take as much as 40 times the amount of copper as if you did it from a coal plant or a natural gas plant. And the reason for that is that, you know, every one of these massive windmills has a huge amount of copper laden uh, in, in that turbine in each of each of the individual units, plus for both solar and wind, all of the gathering systems that bring together all these separate units is incredibly copper intensive. And so as renewables, you know, continue uh, to gain, to rise in popularity, I think that you'll see a huge impact on the global copper demand that really nobody has in their models today. And, you know, this isn't just some academic textbook type of a study. We now have a real life example. And what I mean by that is that if you look at all of the countries in Western Europe and North America, all of the rich developed countries in the world, and you look over the last 10 years at those economies that had a big renewable mandate and those economies that did not, and you control for GDP growth, which were all fairly comparable over the period that we're looking at, the economies that had massive renewable mandates saw a much different copper demand profile than those that did not. And so the ones that we like to focus in on are Spain, Italy, and Germany, and they saw their copper demand over the last decade tick up at the same time as countries like France, the UK, and the United States actually saw copper demand go down over the last decade. And the reason it went down was that copper prices were very high and you helped to bid away the incremental pound away from those markets. But what's so interesting is that the difference between the two is exactly what you'd expect if you used our models for how copper intensive renewable electricity can be. And that trend is going to continue going forward. So I think you have a few different sources of demand. You have renewables, you have India, you have China, and I think altogether the demand story for copper is going to be very, very, very robust. And at the same time, you know, the supply side of the equation is very tight. We don't have very many new large-scale projects coming online in the next few years. We have Cobra Panama, uh, Oyutogoy, as you're, I'm sure, well aware, and your listeners are well aware. Uh, Rio Tinto just announced that there's a, a large project delay uh, at, that, at that project in Mongolia. That was going to be a big source of, uh, of incremental copper production, you know, 400,000 tons. And that's now been pushed out uh, a couple years. But, you know, depending on how severe the problems are there, might be pushed out farther. Um, and then you're talking about the middle part of next decade before uh, Kamoa Kakula, the new uh, Ivanhoe Mines project in the Congo, is, is scheduled to come on. But there's really not a huge number of new projects uh, in the pipeline, certainly much less than you've had historically. Um, and, and so I think the supply side of the picture will remain very tight as well. Interesting. Moving on, has the boot market in gold finally started? Or do you think oil has to go up further before gold really takes off? What do you expect uh, uh, from here for the yellow metal? And uh, would you consider silver to be an interesting investment too? So, you know, we, we do think that the gold bull market now has started in earnest. And if people followed our, our letters and our writing, um, one of the things that we had been waiting for for the past couple of years had been for the ratio and the price of oil to the price of gold to get down to a level that to us signaled that gold is radically undervalued and we didn't get there. So, so gold has remained expensive relative to oil. In past cycles, gold got down to be as cheap as 10 to 1. So that is one ounce of gold could buy 10 barrels of oil. That in the past signaled gold as being undervalued or oil as being expensive. On the flip side of things, um, whenever one ounce of gold could buy 20 barrels or more uh, of oil, 
then gold was considered to be expensive and oil was considered cheap. In this past cycle, we got it up to in the 40s. That was an all-time record. And to us, signaled that oil is radically undervalued. And as a result, we have been largely out of the gold market and had much more of our allocations into um, into the oil and energy market. And that's mostly been the right trade. However, that stopped about six or seven months ago. And, and Gold has been largely outperforming, and now it seems as though gold is firmly in a, in a bull market. And so it's broken out past its trading range, and, and I think we're, we're going to see the next leg of the bull market that started all the way back in 1999. So the question is, why was that able to happen this time, even though it never achieved a radically undervalued uh, ratio relative to oil? And I think there are uh, several reasons for that. Um, and And... I'll maybe use this as an opportunity to suggest that, that your listeners go and read our, our latest quarterly letter, which I think is due to be released tomorrow. But we actually, without giving away the whole thing, we actually do talk about why we think this cycle could be, uh, has some different dynamics than the last one, particularly as it relates um, to, to the gold to oil ratio. But we do think that gold today now is in a bull market. Uh, I think that this last breakout has sort of confirmed that uh, in our mind. And we think that that the next leg is now upon us. Silver can be interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, precious metals investors will know that in every past precious metal bull market, uh, silver at various times has done incredibly well, usually far outperforming the gold price. And the reason for that, you know, has tended to be that it's a more, a little bit of a more, uh, since it's since it's a cheaper. Um, metal, it's been a little bit more speculative in nature. It tended to sort of attract a little bit more. Uh, speculative energy, and and I'm sure that this time in this cycle will be no different as well. And and you'll know that the bull market has really gotten going when when I think silver begins to radically outperform gold, which has not happened yet. Do you have any views on iron ore? You know, we don't have uh, tremendous views on iron ore today, um, and the big reason for that is I told you the analysis that we did before about copper, where we looked at the total installed capacity of copper in an economy versus its GDP. And we did the same thing, or actually the original research by, by Paul Gate was done using iron ore statistics. And what you'll notice there is that China is much farther on its progression um, than it is in the copper uh, trend. So on the copper side of things, we're still very, very early in this up movement uh, as you install more copper into the economy. But from an iron ore and steel perspective, you're much farther along that curve. And so we've often been with the feeling that um, as far as a demand, demand growth driver, uh, you just simply were farther along in the process on the steel and iron ore side of things than you were in other commodities, notably energy and copper. And so we've tended to favor those industries. Uh, obviously, with situations in Brazil uh, and their tailings dams, um, you know, you had a bit of a shock to the iron ore market and, and the price came up considerably. But as far as the longer term fundamentals, I don't think they're as favorable uh, as copper or uh, the energy commodities. Cool. I read your newsletter a lot, which I strongly recommend to everyone who's listening to this podcast to subscribe. In your newsletter, you also mentioned that you're bullish on agricultural commodities because, um, amongst other things, the decreased sunspot activity was the first one to mention this. Well, the, the first one I read to mention this. Um, so could you please elaborate on that and let us know how to play the sector? Sure. So st stepping back for a second, um, you know, in our last letter, we wrote about um, what we believe is about to take place in the global sunspot cycles. And, and basically, uh, the sunspot cycles are a very controversial um, subject. You, you get many people debating many sides of it. However, 
the uh, sun tends to go through periods where it releases more and less solar radiation and energy uh, that tends to work on a fairly predictable cycle. Uh, the cycle can be measured by what they call sunspots, which are effectively uh, surface expressions on the surface of the sun that are visible uh, from the Earth. And by measuring those, you can have a sense as to, as to where we are in the globe or in the in the current sunspot cycle. So there is reason to believe that we're now entering a period of minimal sunspot activity, which correlates with a less than average um, release of solar energy. Um, the question is whether or not that had any had any impact on uh, climate trends over the last 70 or 80 years, because it has corresponded to a period uh, of increased sunspot activity and so a period of additional solar radiation. Um, now, it sounds very controversial to say that. Uh, there are people in the climate community uh, who, who will acknowledge the impact of sunspot activity on their climate models. Uh, in fact, a lot of models do do implement sunspots as, as one of the inputs and variables. Other people will say, yes, it has some impact, but, but not nearly as much as other causes. Leaving that aside, it does seem now that we are entering into a period uh, of radically different sunspot activity. And the question is whether or not that'll have an impact on growing conditions and weather patterns going forward. The reason it's so important, I think, is even, even more interesting, which is that the last five years we have had near record growing conditions in every major crop growing region in the world. And that, that has been, um, I would say, fairly unprecedented. It's resulted in global yields that have been incredibly high uh, and have gone a long way to uh, meeting global demand, which has also been running very strong for, for grains. Um, so basically, as many of these emerging market, emerging market economies grow, they demand more protein in their diet, which in turn uh, drastically increases the need for grain to raise that protein. Um, all of that demand has been met and then some with just these unbelievably strong yields coming as a result of these unbelievably good growing conditions. The question is, going forward, if we are to enter a new sunspot cycle, could that have an impact on weather? And we, like I like to say, we're, we're sort of going down a nice edge right now where demand has been running very strong, but supply has been running very strong. So all it would take would be a small change in crop outputs and yields in order to drastically tighten that market very, very quickly. And if we are entering into a period of disrupted weather, you know, that can happen awfully fast. Um, what I think is so interesting is no sooner did we write that that this year uh, you had the wettest spring uh, in the United States in, in many years, I think, in history. Uh, it's had a huge impact on when you've been able to plant the crop as well as the crop quality and conditions as we progress through August. And so I think the likelihood that we get another year of record yield this year is all but behind us. It's not going to happen. And so the ramifications to the global grain markets, I think, will be very, very big. And so you have seen uh, both corn and soy start to respond now. Um, and I think people are beginning to realize that that you are sort of running this market. Uh, yes, demand, or yes, supply has been very, very strong, but demand has been equally strong. And so what seems to be uh, a nicely balanced and even oversupplied market could be become precarious very quickly. And, and I think whether it ends up that the longer term nature uh, of sunspot cycles uh, ends up having a correlation to climate or not, what we do know is that this year already has been has been a very unusual year and that the uh, yields 
I don't think we'll, we'll be able to achieve what it did in the past and, and the ramifications to that could be very bullish. Okay. Adam, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. Daniel would like to recommend your newsletter to everyone listening to this podcast. It's brilliant. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. Thank you.